Good evening. Thanks for coming. Today's shear um, was sponsored by Dorothy Melvin. This is in honor of her father's yardzeit, Mordechai ben Yitzchak. May his neshama have a very great aliyah. This is on the 21st of Tammuz, I think on Wednesday. May his neshama have a great aliyah to the greatest of heights. And may he channel lots of brachas to you, Dorothy, and for only, only good, mazal and bracha, and only, only good things. Thank you so much. Another uh, sponsor this week was by uh, Jody Leance. This is in honor of her father's yard site, Mayor Ziskin ben Moshe. And his yard site is going to be on the 22nd of Tammuz. May his neshama have the greatest aliyah to the greatest of heights and a lot, a lot of bracha, mazel, and a lot of nachas from the children and only good things. Um, much, much, much bracha for the entire family and a mazel tov on the upcoming wedding of your son Ruvain. Only, only bracha and a mazel. Thank you so much. Another dedication today was by a Rabbi Baruch Brody. And this is in honor of an uncle whose yard site I think is this week. Yosef ben Moshe Chester is his last name, who was a very special yid, and may this be his chus to his neshama to carry him to the greatest of heights, and much, much, much bracha to you and and uh, and to the entire Brody family for all that you need and all that you want, both in the material and in the spiritual. Then we have Baruch Hashem, there's been a good sponsorship this week. Um, the next has been for a very special woman who came here all the time who passed away just a few years ago, three years ago, so suddenly. Um, this is in honor of Bracha Finkelstein. Bracha Leia Chava Bas Shmuel, Allah HaShalom. And uh, this shir was sponsored by um, both of their, of her children independently. Uh, Meira 
and her son-in-law, Arya Erlich, were sponsors of this year in honor of their mother-in-law. And also, Shmuley and Sarah Goldberg uh, sponsored this year in honor of their mother and mother-in-law. Again, this is Bracha Le'echava Bas Shmuel. May her neshama have the greatest aliyah. And may she shep nachas from you and your entire, both of you and your families. And maybe mashpia, tremendous blessings. A lot, a lot of bracha for the best, best, best things. Begashmias, Ibaruchnias, and we want to see bracha back here with us as she was so attached to Mayan Yisrael here every single class and like a absorbing like a sponge. Very special. A very, very special, say a very special student of mine. So her neshama be uh, have a, a very, very, very great aliyah. Uh, the shir was also sponsored by Esti Mansuri. This is an honor of her loving parents. Rabbi Yochanan and Shoshana Mansuri May Hashem bless both of them with mazel bracha and a lot of nachas from the entire family. And only, only, only good and so much simcha, so much good, shaduchim, and much, and much goodness for the Mansuri family. The CD this week, uh, last but not least, the CD this week was dedicated by our dear friend of Shlema Goldner and his wonderful wife, Gabby Goldner. And this is in honor of their Dear son, Pinchas, whose yard site is going to be this week, um, Pinchas ben Shleima Asher Halevi Olav Ashalem, may his neshama have the greatest, greatest aliyah uh, for all that they do from Mayan all the time. May their neshama, may his neshama be elevated to the greatest, greatest heights. May he bring so much bracha to the family. Um, in everything, and may we be reunited with him very soon. Pinchas is Eliyahu, and Eliyahu is the one who's Mavasar Geula, he's the one who brings and notifies us about the redemption. So definitely Pinchas is here by Tchias HaMesim to lead us into the Geula Shalema. May it happen, take from Yad Mamish, and Bechlal for the Jewish people. It should already be. Umach Hashem Dima Hashem should remove all tears, and these days should be transformed into great holidays. This week is Parshas Pinchas. And the Torah begins with um, applauding the heroic act of Pinchas. Pinchas was a grandson of the high priest, Aaron HaKohen, and he acted, uh, he took things into his own hand when he saw a tremendous Chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name. In the conclusion of last week's Parsha, Parshas Balak, we find that the Jewish people were seduced by the Moabite girls. This was the plan of Balak uh, and Bilam. When he saw that he couldn't defeat the Jewish people by cursing them, he came up with a plan to get the Jewish people to sin. And uh, so the Moabite girls uh, came around the Jewish camp, and the Gemara describes the whole thing, how they tricked the Jewish men, and it ended up being a terrible, terrible, devastating situation where thousands of Jews were being... um, were, being, uh, were sinning with the daughters, with the Moabite girls. And not only that, but from sin to sin, Avera, Guerrero, Savera, the, 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 these girls um, brought the Jewish men to, act, to serve idols as well. Because they had told them that uh, they not, if they don't bow down to the idol, then they won't consent to have relations with them. So this had brought not only two of the cardinal sins, not only idolatry, adultery and idolatry, both together, 
It was a terrible, terrible situation. And it brought about uh, the death of thousands upon thousands of Jews. There was a plague that broke out and 24,000 Jews died. You know, we hear about people dying in the world. 20 people died over here, 50 people died over here. And you think the numbers that you hear in the Chumash, you see 24,000 people, 24,000 funerals. People just died. And in addition to that, that was those who died in a magefa, in a plague. But in addition to that, there were those that had witnesses. And, and because of idolatry, they were executed by the courts. And Rashi says there were 86,000 judges. And each, and, each, and each one of them killed two people. So you're talking about 172,000 Jews were put to death. So you're dealing with almost a quarter of a million people dying in the desert. This is right before, this is already after all the tsarists. This is finally after the 40 years. We're ready to go into Eretz Yisrael. And such a terrible stumbling block happened. Such a terrible story happened to the Jewish people. While this chaos was going on, the people of Shevet Shimon, um, many of them were involved in this, in, this, uh, in this sin, came running to their leader. And they said, you're watching the Jewish courts putting us to death and you're not saying anything? You don't protect us? Do something for us. So this uh, head of the tribe, as the Torah says, Zimri ben Sali, went and he came to a princess, a Moabite princess, the daughter of one of the, there were five leaders in Moab. No, in kings, there were five uh, princes. And this was a, the princess, this was the daughter of one of the, uh, one of the uh, rulers of Moab. And he said to her, um, will you have relations with me? She said to him, no, 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 no. My father told me, I am reserved only for the leader of you guys. I'm, I'm the daughter of the king, so I am meant to be only for the leader, which means I'm only for Moshe Rabbeinu. I'm going to get Moshe to sin. That was her plan. So he said, well, you're not the daughter of a king. You're just the daughter of the head of a tribe, because Midian was five tribes, and I am the leader of a tribe. So therefore, me and you are fit for each other. It says that he grabbed her by the hair, and he brought her to Moshe. And he said to Moshe, is she permitted or is she not permitted? And Moshe said, of course she's prohibited. So he says, and who allowed you to marry a Gentile woman? Because Moshe's wife, Zipporah, was the daughter of Yisrael. Obviously the rules are different, because this is before the Torah is given, and after the Torah is given. So the whole thing is a different story, but this is what he did. And then he went off with this girl, um, this was his, and he had relations with her, and uh, this is all going on publicly in front of everybody. Um, so Pinchas sees what's going on, and um, he gets up, and he comes running to Moshe Rabbeinu. Now what happened was, there is a rule, there is a law. Now, having relations with a non-Jewish woman is not a prohibition stated explicitly in the Chumash. You would think, like, wow, it's not stated explicitly in the Chumash. And the punishment of it, there is no, like we know, that in other, 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 other forbidden relationships can have various different kinds of punishments. Punishment by lashes, and many of them punishable by death. Um, when it comes to this sin, the Torah does not say explicitly any punishment. There is nothing in the Chumash in it. However, there is what's called halacha l'moyshe mesinai. Halacha l'moyshe mesinai means a, a law that was given over to Moshe 
but was not written in the book. It was handed over Moshe, just like in a manner of like Torah Shabal Peh. But it has the same severity of Torah Shabiksav, which means it's, it's as severe as a biblical law. And what was given over to Moshe Rabbeinu is that a man who cohabits with a Gentile woman, it's forbidden, but not only is it forbidden, that if someone, a zealot, wants to kill that person, he's allowed to kill that individual. It's called Haboyal Aramis. If someone has relations with a non-Jewish woman, a Jewish man has relations with a non-Jewish woman, Kanoyim Poigimboy. A person that's a zealot is allowed to encounter him. Encounter him with a sword is allowed to shoot him to death. He's allowed to kill him. That's the rule. What happened to Moshe Rabbeinu? Moshe Rabbeinu could have acted at that moment. If there's anybody that's a zealot for God's name, Moshe could have grabbed a spear or whatever and gone to kill this person who was publicly in front of everybody going to sin. And so um, what happened was Moshe forgot. At that moment, Moshe was so distraught about the horrible situation that was going on in the Jewish camp that he went blank and he forgot the law. Pinchas, his great nephew, remembered. And he came running to Moshe and he said, My dear uncle, didn't you teach us 40 years ago? 40 years ago, this is 40 years later already, that when someone cohabits with a Gentile woman, a, a zealot is allowed to kill him. So Moshe answers him very strangely. Moshe doesn't say, go ahead and do it, or let me go do it. Moshe says, the one that reads, that reads the letter should execute what it says. In other words, if you're the one who brought it up, if you're the one who read the letter of the king, that this is what has to be, so act on your own. So Pinchas went in, and he came to the tent of where Zimri was with this, with this princess, Kazbi, and he entered and he killed them both. The Torah makes a tremendous, that's where last week's parsha ends. And he, when he did that, and he killed Zimri together with this woman, um, he stopped the plague, because Jews were dying like flies. As we said before, 20, in addition to those that were being killed, 24,000 men dropped dead. So at this moment, when as soon as he did that, it stopped the plague. And then God comes to Moshe, and Hashem is applauding, that's where this week's Torah portion begins, Hashem is applauding the act of, Zim, of Pinchas, and saying because he took vengeance for God, because he took vengeance for Hashem, and therefore, I want you to tell him, I am giving him a covenant of peace. And the reward that I'm giving him is he's going to become a Kohen. Pinchas was not meant to be a Kohen. Because even though he's a grandson of a Kohen, his grandfather is the, is the high priest, Pinchas was not a Kohen. How can Pinchas not have been a Kohen until that time? Because he was born from a parent who wasn't a Kohen. His father, Elazar, who is the next high priest, as we learned earlier, at this point actually Aaron wasn't alive anymore. Elazar, his father, he's the son of the high priest of the, of the Kohen Gadol. But still, he was born from a non-Kohen because he was born before his father became a Kohen. You see, the Jews, the Kohanim were selected when the tabernacle was put up 40 years earlier. Pinchas was already born at that time. And the only people, now the way it worked was that the first Kohanim were anointed with the special anointing oil. The special anointed oil had this superpower. and had a certain potency, it had a certain incredible godly power that it was able to make 
transform a human being into another identity. It turned a regular person into a holy being, into a coin. Now, once they were anointed with the anointing oil, automatically their genetics were Kohen genes, and anybody born from a Kohen whose father is a Kohen is automatically a Kohen, doesn't need to have the special anointing oil to elevate him because he's born from someone, he's, it's hereditary, it's given over from father to son. But Pinchas was born, in other words, he left his father, born from his father, before his father's body was elevated to holiness. And when, when they anointed the Kohanim, they only anointed two generations, Aaron and his four sons, not the grandchildren. So anybody that was not lucky to be born a little too early, was Pinchas, was not a Kohen. His younger brothers were Kohanim, but not him. But at this point, as a result, and as a reward for his heroic act, which as we're going to see soon, was very dangerous. He put his life in danger, because the family, the Shevet of Shimon, were ready to tear him to pieces. And even later we find that the Jewish people were very suspicious of his act. People were saying a zealot, a crazy man, a meshugana, whatever. People were, even though he stopped the plague, people were not fond of what he did. Until God had to come and explicitly reward him and applaud him. And make a big deal about Pinchas. So Pinchas really, really put his reputation on the line. He put his very life on the line. But he did what he needed to do. So God applauds Pinchas, gives him the kahuna. That's what it says. In the, that's the beginning of the parsha. Then the Torah goes ahead and discusses the mitzvah of counting the Jewish people. The Jews were instructed a second time. They were counted 40 years earlier, and now they're counted again. It goes in the census of the Jewish people. Further in Pasha's Pinchas. And the reason why they were counted now, because they just suffered such a loss. So God loves his children, so he wants to count how many are left over. Fine. The next Pasha after this, we begin deciding on the division of the land. In other words, the Torah begins to tell us about casting lots, how they would divide the land of Israel. And they would cast lots, who would get which portion, and the like. Finally, the end of Parshas Pinchas talks about karbonos. Which karbonos? The additional karbonos that we bring on the holidays. Question I have here today, once we heard the story of Pinchas. The name Pinchas, it brings to our mind someone, a zealot, who is willing to give his life up for God. Very powerful. A very fiery Jew. Pinchas. And we know that Pinchas is Eliyahu Anavi. Somehow he metamorphosizes into Eliyahu Anavi. Okay. Eliyahu Zachar Latov. He's like forever the hero of the Jewish people. The question is, is there a connection between the name Pinchas, who he is, his identity with the rest of the Torah portion? Because remember we spoke many times that every parsha has a theme. Is there a a central theme running through a thread that runs through the rest of the Torah portion, the counting of the Jewish people, the, um, the uh, division of the land, and the karbanos of the Musaf, do we find something that's running through the entire parsha, in which we can say that these all identify with Pinchas? Or are they just random things that happen to have followed afterwards, but there's no connection? And we know there's no random in the Torah. So we'd like to find the Nekudah HaMeshutafis, meaning the point that unifies the entire parsha. To understand this, we have to dig really deep, because we have to get to the essence of Pinchas. So let's go back, and just a couple of, a couple of questions. Um, the first thing is, the Torah, when it speaks about the tremendous thing that Pinchas did, the Torah says, Tachas asher Because he took vengeance for his God. He fought for God. 
And then it says, again, the Torah says, B'kanoi, when he, Kanoi as Kenasi, when he revenged my vengeance. When he did, when he avenged my vengeance. In other words, God is taking this very, very personal. Now we know there are 613 commandments, and every single commandment is very dear to Hashem. And He really means it when He gives us a commandment, and He really, 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 really cares about that we obey His will. But it seems like there is something over here, the transgression of the sin that was going on, that Jews were cohabiting, cohabiting with non-Jews, that they were having relationships with Gentile women, there was something that was touching a nerve in God. And it really upset Hashem very, very deeply. It seems like this sin, for whatever reason, is an affront. It's a direct assault on God Himself. So we need to understand, why, what is it? Why about this Avera, that the Torah calls it, Pekanoi Tachasashekine Lelokov? He venged God's vengeance. It's like he stood up for God's honor. And you can say, simply, it was a public chilul Hashem. That we got. But is there something more? Is there something besides the chilul Hashem, the desecration of this being, God being ignored publicly in front of everybody? Is there something more particular about the actual sin itself? The other thing we need to understand is the reward is a very strange reward. He's rewarded by being made into a coin. Now, kohun is not for sale. Kohun is not a thing that you purchase, you can be given as a gift. I'm a Kohen. And if I love someone very much and I care about them very much, I want to give them the most awesome birthday present. I can't just put them a document and say, I hereby uh, uh, make you into a Kohen. You can't make someone, and even a court can't do that. No one can do that. Because Kohuna is a fundamental, it's an essential element within the world. We see it a few weeks ago in the parasha, Moshe Rabbeinu says to Korach, when Korach said they wanted to be Kohanim, Moshe is telling him how ludicrous Moshe is telling Korach and his people how ludicrous their argument is. Moshe says to them, if you remember the words a few weeks ago, Boker v'yoda Hashem, in the morning God will notify. Why is he using the term morning? Rashi says he was saying to them, just like you can't, you understand that a human being cannot change the borders that God made between night and day. No matter how much we want and how much we decide, we want to extend the day. We can add an hour... (laughs) like they do over here, daylight savings time, to the clock, turn the clock back. But we can't turn time around. You can't make the day be longer with an extra hour. You cannot do that. Because God is the one who set the system of the galaxies, the rotation of time, when it is night and when it is day, and there's nothing human beings can do to change that. Now, the same is, um, Moshe Rabbeinu says to Korach, God made separations in the world. He separated between Jew and non-Jew. And within the Jewish people, God separated between ordinary Jews and Kohanim. They're a different species. They're a different creature. They're a different being. You can't change that. So if you can't change, then how can you give that as a gift? How can it be rewarded? A reward is you give something, you give an object. You can teach someone information. You can enlighten them. Like people in history were given, they did something very great. They had merited that Leo and Navi would come and teach them Torah or things like that. You can give. But to change the person's identity, change his very being, that's that's not... Since when is that a gift? It doesn't make any sense. That that should be a matana, that should be a reward for what Pinchas did. Okay.
So to understand this a little better, let's get a little bit more information about the ruling, as we said earlier, that when someone cohabits with a Gentile woman, um, they are allowed to be killed. So let's learn a little bit about the... It's, that's not so simple. The Gemara talks about that in the Sechtis Sanhedrin, Daf Pei Beis, and there are lots of restrictions. The law applies in a very, 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 in a very specific, in a specific state. And that is, the Gemara says, number one, the first thing that, is, that, it, that the Gemara tells us about it is that this can only, this action can only be taken, which means the person can only be killed only while they're in the middle of the action. And only in the midst, in other words, while they're, they're, they're with the woman, then they're allowed to be killed. Once the person had done the sin already, once the two had separated, then, if, then, then the person is not, should not be put to death. Not only that, if the zealot comes 10 minutes later, and he corners the guy in a room with his spear and he kills him, then guess what? The zealot is put to death. Because he killed an innocent human being. And it's the only time the person warrants the death penalty is in the midst of the act. No other time, only in the middle of the action. That is the rule. Bishas Maisa. Which is, and that's what the Gemara says, in this case, had Zimri separated already from Kazbi, then Pinchas would have been killed. That's why it says an interesting thing. The Gemara says that there were a whole bunch of miracles that happened to Pinchas. The miracles were as follows. Rashi, Rashi hints to it in the end of last week's parsha. Rashi says there were miracle, the miracles that happened to Pinchas. So what were the miracles? So the Gemara says like this. First of all, how did Pinchas do this? When Pinchas came out from speaking to Moshe, when he spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu in the tent, when Pinchas came out, he pretended, how was he going to get into that cubicle where Zimri was? The people of, of Shimon were all protecting, standing. So what he did was, he took a spear, and he removed the, the metal part, or he hid it, and he walk, came walking on a stick. And like, just like a, like a respectable person walking with a walking stick. And as he came over, he said to the people outside, he said, what do you think? Are the Levium any better than the Shimonim? Are the Levium better? In other words, if the Shimonites can sin, why can't the Levites sin as well? So they thought that he also wants to join the rebellion and sinning against God, and that would have been an unbelievable thing, because that would have been, well, take a look, this is the grandson of Aaron HaKohen, this is the son of the high priest, I mean, once you get him to do this as well, then you, then, like, the, 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 the rebellion is complete, I mean, it would have had a demonstrated ultimate, right? So, they let him in, and when he was inside, the Gemara says six things, six miracles happened. First of all, that Zimri didn't separate from her yet, Secondly, he killed them together, both together. Thirdly, when he killed them, uh, Zimri did not get it, did not alarm anybody because they could have killed Pinchas. He didn't get a chance to alarm anybody. And when he came out, um, they were both on the spear together. And then when he came out, it says that the miracle happened because had he had to bend down, they would have they, they they could have fallen off the spear. And being that it had to be demonstrated for everybody that he had a right to do it because 
they were, they were, they, they, as we said earlier, it's only at the time of the actual sin. So for that reason, the malach came and he lifted the tent, he lifted the place, he made it higher so that he can go out without having to bend the spear down. And a few, remember, I'm not recalling all the miracles, but this is what happened. So the 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 ability, this mitz, this um, permission, or you say mitzvah, or whatever that you're that this person should be killed or could be put to death by a zealot, is only at the time of the sin itself, not any later. Okay. The other thing that is interesting is that if someone comes to the bay, why did Moshe Rabbeinu answer? Like the one who reads the letter should do should act on his own. Why did Moshe say that? Because the rule is that this is one ruling that you don't, the Beisdin cannot give an explicit ruling that it should be done. There's a very interesting idea. Number one, the courts can't put that person to death. In other words, if the court, if we know that someone is doing so and so around the corner and there is a court, the court has no right to hand down a verdict that that person should be put to death. They can't do that. It's only, number one, an individual that's enraged. That he's bothered. God's, the, the, the chilu Hashem, the desecration of, 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 of holiness, bothers him so much that it sends him into a rage, into a holy rage. And again, it can't be for any ulterior motives. You understand that this has to be a person who we recognize is a really God-fearing person and really cares about Torah and mitzvahs and is not doing because he wants to get even with that guy. Okay, so that's very, very important. So, so but, but again, it's not something that the Beis didn't can do. It has to be only from this individual who's, who gets upset, and as a result of that is allowed to kill that individual. But, some, but the other thing is, the Beisdin, the rabbi, is not allowed to tell if he asks. The rabbi can't say, this is the rule, if you want to go kill him, kill him. He's not allowed to say that. If he does it on his own, he does it on his own. But it's a halacha ve'ein moirin came. If you look in Shulchan Aruch, the Beis Yosef does not bring in Shulchan Aruch this rule that you can kill that person. And the Mepharshim say, the reason why he doesn't say it is because Shulchan Aruch is the rabbi. The Shulchan Aruch cannot tell you to go ahead and do it. The Shulchan Aruch only says what happens if he wasn't killed by a zealot. Then what, what, what's the story? Okay. But there is no explicit statement of chas v'shalem when you say that the rabbi says you can go kill. So this needs a little explanation. This whole idea is, is, is strange because where do we find someone who warrants the death penalty because of an act that they did and it's only at the time that they're doing the sin. We don't find that in any other mitzvah in the Torah. If someone violates Shabbos in a way where there was a warning and it was in front of witnesses and they went and they desecrated Shabbos within one of the 39 malachas in Allah to do one Shabbos. So this person could be put to death 10, 20 years later. There's actually no, in uh, how do they call it over here in America where there is an expiration. Um, whatever. Where, 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 where you can only bring someone and hold someone accountable for an action that they did for a certain amount of time. If you're... Uh, but over here, there's no expiration. If someone does a sin, that is played, till the day they die, they carry the death penalty. Over here, it's only at the time of the sin. Why is that? It's a very, very strange thing. We don't have that anywhere else in the Torah. There's one exception. When someone is chasing after someone else to murder them, 
If a murderer is chasing after someone, if someone is running after someone else with a knife, if a terrorist is running after chas v'shalom, after someone else with a knife or a gun. So the rule is you're allowed to kill this terrorist, even if they're a Jew. Okay? You're allowed to kill because someone comes to kill you, you're allowed to kill him in self-defense. That rule applies only at the time that what? At the time that uh, they're, they're a threat. The moment the threat is over, the person is leaving the building and they're going away, you're now allowed to sneak up behind and shoot. But it's at the time when they're chasing after, then you're allowed to take their life. But there we can understand, because over there, the reason you're killing them is not because of an act that they did. They didn't do anything. You're killing this individual in order to save the other person from being killed. You're saving a life. Now, since they're threatening the life of another individual, so you're allowed to kill. So that makes sense that only as long as the threat is there, so they don't have Misa. But if not, not, that's called a Rodef, a pursuer. It's only as, they're, only as long as they're pursuing. But in this case, you're killing him not because of something, of someone that they're threatening. You're killing, this person is being put to death for a sin that they are doing or that they did. If that's the case, why is it only while they are doing the sin and not at a later time? This is the only mitzvah, the only punishment in the Torah, which is only at the time of the sin itself and not in any other time. The other thing we have to find, this is the only time where we have execution that's not by the Beisden. Again, besides, let's go back to the same case. We're someone is running after threatening someone else's life. But there we understand why it's not by the basin. Because if you're going to go run to the basin and get their approval, by the time you're going to come back, this person is going to be murdered already. So of course you have to act instantly. But over here, why is it that there is such a rule that the basin, in this case, they could have, had, they could have convened immediately. And the Gemara states that Zimri ben Sali was together with Kuzbi for a very long time. Because the Gemara said he had relations with her a very long time. So what happened? So... The, 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 if that's the case, they could have handed down a verdict, Moshe Rabbeinu is Chayav Misa. But we say it's not the case. It's only by a zealot and not by the based. And why is it that if this is permissible, and if it's a mitzvah to kill this individual, why doesn't the rabbi tell you to do it? Why isn't it instructed, but it's kind of left to the person to act on his own? which obviously creates a very big danger, you can imagine. Leaving such types of situations to people to act on their own without the instruction of an authority leaves room for, for, for Meshagayim, leaves room for crazy people. And yet the Torah allows this. So we really need to understand why this is. So there is an interesting question in regards to this whole situation. Is the person who is perpetrating this sin, in this case, we say that kanoyim poigimboy, a zealot is allowed to kill him. So here is a lamdish shaila, meaning a Talmudic kind of a question. Does that mean that the person is chayav misa? Chayav misa means, is that person a person who is meant to die. Is he, because there's a certain called chiyuve misa. Chiyuve misa means uh, if someone by that bows down to an idol, he is chayuve misa. He warrants the death penalty. If someone uh, uh, does uh, cohabits with, uh, with a married woman, he's chayuve misa. Certain things, someone violates Shabbos, it's chayuve misa. Someone kills someone, chayuve misa. That person is on death row, in other words. 
he is now re- needs to be put to death for the act. Okay. The question over here is, do we say that w- at least at the time period, that period of time, whatever the time is, that this person is engaged in that sin, is he as a human being warranting the death penalty? Or no, he's an innocent human being, meaning innocent, I don't mean innocent that he's not sinning, but innocent from the death penalty, it's only that the zealot is allowed to kill him. Or is it that he is, he's, he's in the category of a chayim? So what would be the, it sounds like it's just very technical. The guy's going to die or he's not going to die. The zealot is going to come down the block or the zealot is not going to come down the block. That's the question. What's the difference if he's chayim mis or he's not chayim mis? Well, there's a bit interesting difference. See, in Talmudic study, we always have these hypothetical scenarios. But there's an interesting halacha. And this is a concept called kamlei bidarabimine. Every student of Gemara comes across this idea of kamlei bidarabimine. What does kamlei bidarabimine mean? We give a person the bigger punishment. Kamlei, we have put him to the bigger punishment. What do I mean by that? If a person perpetrates an act, and for that act that they are doing, or while they're doing their act, they're, 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 they're meant to get two types of punishment. One more severe and one, and one less. So the rule is we don't give a person for one action two punishments. What we do is we give them the bigger punishment and they're excused on the lesser punishment. For example, if someone picks up a gun in someone's house on Shabbos and shoots through the window and sends a bullet through the window and, and, and obviously breaks the window. Okay? The question is, do they have to pay for the window that they broke? They didn't kill anybody, but they shot the gun on Shabbos. What happens? They're, they're punishable by death. Okay, first of all, the act of shooting might be making a fire. We're not going to get into that. But one thing is for sure, when you carry something from a private domain into a public domain, let's say the street is a very big street, Wilshire Boulevard or something that qualifies to be considered public domain, and they shoot the bullet from the private apartment outside, so they carried from a private domain, to, so they, and they were warned that that's going to be a chilul Shabbos and the like. But while, as they did that, they also shot and, 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 and smashed the window, or sent a bullet through the window. Bindo has to be repaired. Do they have to pay for the window? Do they have to pay for the window? And they'll, then they'll be put to death. Or maybe they don't have to pay for the window. So the answer to this question is that the owner of the house is out of luck. They're not going to get the, this person to pay for their window. The person is going to be killed, but they're not going to get their window repaired. And the reason for that is because we always give the person the bigger punishment and not the smaller punishment. It doesn't mean that once someone killed someone, they can go smashing windows from today till tomorrow and they're not going to be held responsible. They're going to have to pay for every window they break. We're only talking about something that is done simultaneously, together. One act that brings a bigger thing and a smaller thing, you give them the bigger thing. So now my question is going to be like this. If this Zimri Ben Sully, who's supposed to be put to death, if Zimri Ben Sully would be at that time also causing damage to someone's property, for whatever reason, is he, would he have to pay or would he not have to pay? If he wasn't killed yet. Do the children, I mean, is, is, does he have to pay? Well, it depends on what we're saying. If we say Zimri warrants the death penalty, he is a person who is high of Misa, then what? Then of course he has, then he doesn't have to pay because he has a bigger punishment and not a lesser punishment. But if you're going to say that, it, that this interesting way of putting him to death where only the zealot can kill him, Bazdan has no right, but only the zealot can put this person... Means, let's understand technically what that means, it means that he's an innocent person. He's not eligible for... He's not on death row. 
It's only that there is a circumstance that someone is all happy. If someone kills him, they're not, they don't have to, they're not, they're not going to be responsible. But then he'll have to pay, because he's not a person who has a chi of misa as a bigger punishment. So by the way, this question that we're bringing up right now is a machlokas, it's an argument between the Rishonim, between the Ran and the Ramban. Two great Talmudists. The Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim, learns explicitly that um, this individual who got killed, sorry, who is meant to be killed now, is not Chai of Misa, he's not considered someone who's marked for death. He's not considered that. And what's his proof? And he brings a proof of that. It's only you're allowed to kill him. But he's not a chai of mis. What's his proof? The Gemara says that had, had events changed a little bit, had Zimri been quick enough and grabbed the spear and killed Pinchas, you know what would have happened? Had Pinchas, had Zimri been aware that Pinchas came in, and had Pinchas managed, had Zimri managed to grab the spear, turn it around, and kill Pinchas, then Zimri would have not have been put to death for that. He would not have been punished. He would not have been responsible for taking a life. Why? Because Pinchas was a rodef. Pinchas was a pursuer. And the rule is, when someone is pursuing to kill you, you're allowed to kill him. You hear that? Pinchas, the Gemara says it explicitly, he would not have had, that's why it was a miracle that he didn't do that. But had he been able, turned around and killed Pinchas, he would have been exempt from being put to death. Why? Because Pinchas is threatening his life. And since Pinchas is threatening the life, the rule is we said earlier, that if someone is threatening your life, you're allowed to kill him. So the Ram says, hold it. If you are, if Zimri is a person who's on death row, who's meant to be killed, then when, when Pinchas is killing him, he's not killing him. Kill, this rule is only when you're killing an innocent person. When you're killing a, but when you're killing a dead person, meaning you're killing someone who's meant to die, so how can you say that he's chasing after to kill him, he's allowed to kill him? If he is a chai of Misa, he is, he's obliged to die. You can't say, oh, he has to wait for the Bezdin to kill him, because the rule is the Bezdin can't kill. It's only a zealot. So this is the case where the Torah gives permission to kill. So then why? So you have to see there are two things. Pinchas on his, on his, in his end has a right to kill him, but he's risking his life. Because Zimri is not someone who's obligated to die. He's not. And therefore, if he kills Pinchas in self-defense, he's okay. That's the Ram's reasoning, Rabbeinu Nisa. Ramban argues, and Ramban says no. This individual who cohabits with a gentle woman is obligated, is a considered a person that should is chayav, he's obligated to be put to death. It's upon him. It's not just a ruling on the other. It's upon him. If so, what, is, if so, what does the Gemara mean then? That had Pinchas turned around and killed, I'm sorry, had Zimri turned around and killed Pinchas, he would have been exempt? So the Mepharshim say, what the Gemara means, that had he turned around, and by doing that, he would have separated from, from, from Cosby. In other words, had he already gotten away from her and killed him, then he's no more marked for death. Because the obligation, to, as we said earlier, the permission to kill him is only at the time of the act. When the Gemara says that had he killed him, means had it, that in a way where he would not have been still in the middle of whatever. So then he would have been okay. So that's the only case. Okay. That's the idea. So you see this as a question. 
Now, my question that I asked before, where do you find that a chai of Misa, that someone who's chai of Misa, where do you find that someone who's chai of Misa, someone who's marked for death, is, is not punished by the Beisden, number one. Number two, it's given over to, it's a private person that can do it. Number three, it's only at the time of the act. And it's something that the rabbis do not, do not, not um, teach. Right? The question really is only if we learn, this question only becomes if this person is a chay of misa. If we're saying there's a special rule, it's a special rule. But if we're learning that this is an individual who is chay of misa, the question is why is this chi of misa, why is this person who is obligated to die different, manishtana, like we say Pesach by night, why is this person different than all the other people, all the people that committed a sin, the sin is upon them the rest of their life. And over here, it's only at the time of the act. All the people that commit a sin, the basin puts them to death. Over here, it's only a zealot. All the people that commit a sin, the rabbi had the Torah, hands down the verdict of what has to happen. Over here, it doesn't come from the Torah. Here we can ask the question. Okay? So I'm not, I really don't have time now, so we're going to have to skip something. I wanted to show you that Rashi is of the opinion. Rashi, from what Rashi says in the Chumash, Rashi is of the, the opinion that the person who is cohabiting with a Gentile, it's not just that someone has a right to kill him, but that you see from Rashi that the person himself is someone who is high of Misa. Now one more thing that we need to point out, an interesting thing. The Rambam says, and so derived from the Gemara, that if for whatever reason, whatever reason the person did not, was not whatever reason, if there was no zealot, which would happen most of the time, if there was no zealot, oh, by the way, I want to say one more thing. This rule that the person who is cohabiting with a Gentile is allowed to be put to death, there's one more condition. It has to be done, that it's done in public, like the story of Zimri. In other words, if someone is doing it privately, it doesn't have this rule. It's a public, meaning obviously they're not cohabiting in public, but it means that everybody, it's public knowledge that they're doing this thing. That is the rule, that is the rule. But here's another thing. The Gemara says what happens if a person did this sin and they're not, they were not punished. So the Gemara says they're still punished with excision from above. They get, they're high of curries. It's a very serious sin. The person is high of curries. And the Gemara says an interesting thing. That if, if, they have, if they're a Talmud Chacham, then their children will, 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 will not be scholars. They'll be, and if they are uh, a Kohen, they will not merit to have children working in the Beis English. And that's the form of curries. Now this person gets cut away. Their lineage gets cut away from God. That's what the Gemara says. So, but hold it. That obligation of kares doesn't stop. You see, that's, that's, what, that's if he wasn't killed. That means that continues on the rest of his life. Unless he does tshuva, until the day of he, he dies, this person has this darkness and has this chiyuv of kares upon him. So, but hold it. So you see, for one act, so what do we see from here? Let's understand something. Follow along what my question over here is. My question is, how come we're splitting this, the consequences of the act? We're saying like this, the special ruling that a zealot is allowed to kill in is only at the time of the act. But the element that this person is doomed from heaven to die or to be cut off his lineage, that continues the rest of his life. So what do you have to say from here? That for whatever reason, in this sin of, of having relations with a non-Jewish woman, there are two parts to it. There is something that is only taking place at the time of the sin itself. 
And there is something that's going on there for continue. There is a, an effect that lasts forever. And the, this that the zealot is allowed to kill him is only for that particular element that's only happening at the time of this. So now we need to understand why is that? What is it that's only happening? By any other sin, it's not that way. When you do a sin, there's an ongoing lingering effect or an ongoing something of the sin. Over here, there's something about the sin that is horrible, terrible. The fact that we're allowed to kill this person without, it's the only person that can be killed without a trial and without a warning, but it's only at the time of it's happening. So what is that? So here there's something very deep and very important and very fundamental to understanding. And the idea is as follows. In general, it says that the sin of forbidden relations um, is very, very serious. And it affects the human being more than any other sin. It causes a, a certain impurity in the world worse than any other sin in the world. And the reason for that is because every avera, every sin that a person does, is generally performed with a certain power of their being. Okay? There are sins we can sin with our eyes. There are sins we can sin with our, hear, our ears, with our hearing. We're listening to something we shouldn't be listening to. We're, we're watching something we shouldn't be watching. We're thinking something we shouldn't be thinking. We're saying something we shouldn't be saying. Even when we're eating something we shouldn't be eating, it's mainly your stomach, that's your mouth and your stomach that's engaged in the sin. Over there, there is the certain severity because the food gets digested and becomes your body and it feeds every cell of your body. So in that, there is a certain similarity because it encompasses the entire body. Okay, eating. But everything else that a person does, it involves a certain aspect of their being. When in a sin that involves a forbidden relationship, Reish's Chachma, was a great Musar work, brings from the Ramban, from Nachmanides, that in procreation, a person draws upon every, every cell of his body. Because when you're creating a child, when you're drawing forth, the power that is, is happening at the time of a cohibition is what's, what's taking place is a person is drawing the all-inclusive power of his entire being and of his entire body. Because let's understand something, how do you create how do you create someone who is in the image of you, a person, a full-fledged human being, with hands and feet and hearing and seeing, with eyes and ears and the power to smell and brains and a heart and a digestion? What does that show you? That that which the person is engaging in the sin, or not just in, in general, forget about a sin, that which a person is drawing forth in, their, in, their, in, in, a, in a material relationship, in, the crea- in a... Is, involves your entire being from head to toe. The, 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 the seminal, the semen, is a derivative, takes the entire essence of the person's entire body and his entire being. Now, even more than that, Hasidus explains it even deeper. It's not just your physical identity that is all-inclusive, is being involved in the sin. It's also one spiritual identity to the very, very essence of who you are. Because when you create a child, you're not just collecting from your outer powers. You're not creating a bundle. A little bit of eyesight, a little bit of hearing, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you create your children. It's not what you're doing. The source from where that transmission 
of that substance which you're giving over in a physical relationship, the source of that substance is from your soul, but not from the level of your soul where the powers are already expressed, but from the essential state of the soul prior to its expression of any of these powers. How do we know that? Just a simple thing. If a person is blind and they have children, is their child, God forbid, going to be blind just because the father is blind? No. If the father has some other kind of impairment, is the child going to have that same impairment? And the answer is no. I, if I'm giving for myself and I'm impaired, so shouldn't my child have the same impairment, the same deficiency? And the answer is, the deficiency is in the, actu- is in the actualized element of your being. Your power of vision is not being actualized, but in the essence of the soul, the power of vision is complete even in a blind person. When a person is creating a child, they're drawing from their inner self, from their very essence, prior to the expression of their powers. That's where we find something even amazing. We find that sometimes children are far more talented than their parents. And they have sharper brains and sharper abilities and greater kindness. So different elements, their talents can be more than their parents. Why? Why? So the Gemara says, a concept. The Gemara says, the power of the child, is, is, can, be out, can outshine mikoach av the power of the father. And Hasidus explains it. doesn't just mean that. Sometimes a fa- uh, we see that a child can be better than his father, or greater, or more talented. No. Even this that that the powers of the child is so strong, mikoach av, that itself is taken from the father. How, I, mean, I mean, that too, why does the father have nachas? From seeing his child being so, why isn't he... Why isn't the parent jealous? He gets nachas from seeing. The answer is, because when the child is expressing that talent, whose talent is it really? It's the parent's talent. It's just that the parent never got to develop it. It's a talent that they have in potential that has never been developed. The child developed it. How can the child develop something that the parent didn't develop? The answer is, when I'm creating a child, I'm creating the child from my essence, not from my developed self. And therefore, they can develop more than you can develop, than you had chosen. Maybe they worked harder. And they brought forth the powers stronger than the parent did. So you see how deep a child is. Now watch this. When a person does an Avera, what's happening? They're taking a certain... See, what makes an Avera so bad? Spiritually, let's get a little deeper. What makes a sin so bad? What makes a sin so bad is that you're taking a koch, you're taking a power of yours, a holy power, because it's part of a Jew, a Jew is holy. So you're taking a part of your power, and you're giving this power into the forces of unholiness. You, you, when a Jew gives something of himself to the, to, 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 when he sins, he's investing a part of himself into the clip. So if I'm investing my eyesight, I'm investing my eyesight. If I'm investing my ear, my hearing power, I'm investing that. If I'm investing my brain power, it's only a brain. If I'm saying negative words, I'm investing my power of speech in, in an element of darkness. I'm putting it into darkness. Klippa, the unholy forces in the world, are receiving this power and becoming empowered by it. But with which power? Only with a certain identity. Only with a, I'm sorry, only with a certain limit, that particular power that you've given them. God forbid when a person is doing engaged in a forbidden relationship, any kind of forbidden relationship is not only Jew and Gentile. This is any kind of forbidden relationship. Since over here they're engaged with their entire essence and their entire being, so what are they giving to the klippa? 
than giving into the clip of their very identity of their soul, the very essence of who they are is now being transmitted, and therefore clip is becoming enriched with such power, with such might and such strength. It's terrible. That's why it's so severe. Fine. But now let's understand what happens when someone is having a relationship with a Gentile woman, when a Jew is having a relationship with a Gentile woman, here it goes much, much worse. Because in every sin, even when a Jew is investing powers into the klipa, the power that the person invested in the klipa gets entangled in the darkness, it gets entangled and it gets trapped in the darkness, but it itself remains holiness. It remains kedusha. It's an exile in the klipa. You put a power of yourself. Anytime you did, you, 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 you invest a part of your powers, God forbid, a person invests a part of his powers into something dark, there is a little flame of your soul, a little part of Kedusha. There are sparks of holiness that are now being embedded in the darkness. They're giving strength to the forces of darkness, but they themselves remain holy. If you do tshuva, you can bring it back. You can pull it back. Even let's say, let's talk in a relationship. Someone has, someone has an adulterous relationship. Has relationship on, uh, with a married woman. Adulterous relationship. Big, big, terrible sin. Okay, fine. What happens? That power that you've given into the forces, into the klipa, remains holy. Two ways, two things. Let's, first of all, the person, the perpetrator. The adulterer, the person who did this sin, who gave of himself into the klipa, he himself as a human being remains a, a kosher Jew. Doesn't become a non-kosher Jew. Doesn't become a, doesn't become a dark human being. He did a sin, but he himself is a Jew. To the point, Maimonides says so much, Maimonides says an interesting thing in the Egeres, in his letter that Maimonides wrote for the Yemenite Jews. Maimonides writes an astonishing thing. That a person thinks that just because I decided that I'm going to do sins, and then I, now I'm my identity, and now I'm not religious, or now I'm not observant, and therefore I'm not held accountable anymore because I'm not observant. It doesn't work that way. Maimonides says that your Ravam ben Nevat, your Ravam ben Nevat, who knows to be the biggest sinner of the Jewish people, he calls, he says he's going to be accountable for not making an erev tafshilin. You know, before Yamtiv, you have to make an Erev Tavshilin. It's one of these details like that, that you're running right before Yamtiv. To make an Erev Tavshilin, he's going to be asked by God, why didn't he make an Erev Even though he has much, he say, come on, God. This is what you're charging him with. The guy's charged with <laughs> triple murder, and you're charging him with not making... Yeah, every single thing is being reckoned with. That, what does that tell you? That, 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 that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. That's showing you that what... That you, no matter how many times you sin, you still remain a Jew. Yisrael Afapishachata, a Jew, even though he sins, Yisrael he, you remain a Jew. How about this adultery ended up in a pregnancy and there's a child being born? We know that that child is an illegitimate child, he's called a mamzer. And that's a really bad thing. To create a mamzer, an illegitimate Jew, an illegitimate person in this world, terrible. It's a very bad thing. The Gemara even says it's something you can't fix. What's considered a corruption that you can't fix is if you create a mamzer. Because what did we say earlier? When you do tshuva, you can take the energy back into Kedusha. But that's if it didn't come, the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, that's if it didn't come down on a physical body. Once it was created into a physical body, you've given the spiritual energy a physical body. And this physical body is, an, is a created being, created against God's will. It's not the child's fault. 
It's the parent's fault. But yet, this child is an entity of negativity. True. But that mamzer, is he a Jew or not a Jew? He or she, of course they're a Jew. Not only that, the Gemara says that if this mamzer becomes a Talmud Chacham, and becomes a big scholar, goes to Yeshiva and he learns and learns and becomes the big Rosh Yeshiva, guess what? He comes before even a Kohen Gadol. I'm Aretz. If you have two people walking in, you don't know who to give the okay, Aliyah, you have to give to a Kohen. But if you want to honor two individuals, one of them is a Mamzer, is an illegitimate child, but he's a Talmud Chacham. He's a, he's a scholar. The other one is a Kohen Gadol, but he's an ignoramus. In the days of the Second Temple, you had a lot of ignorant Kohen Gadols. Guess what? You're supposed to put the Mamzer, who's a Talmud Chacham, first. That means he's also an entity of Kedusha. He's trapped. He's Neshama. is trapped in darkness. But he himself remains Kedusha. That's until someone hear this, hear this, till someone goes, Chas v'shalom, and has relationships with a non-Jewish woman. When a person has relationships with a non-Jewish woman, what he's really doing is, here this is very frightening, he's amputating a piece of God. Because there's a piece, not first I say, a piece of his own neshama. He's taking his Jewish soul, and not just a certain power of his soul, but his very essence of his Jewish soul, and he's creating with that, he's translating it into the, because the, the mother, this baby, who's going to be born from this, is not Jewish. That means you created from Kedusha, you created non-Kedusha. It's the only time when you rip a piece of holiness and turn it into forever and ever into something unholy. It became, it was written. In other words, this is God forbid chopping a piece of Kedusha off from Kedusha and putting it into, into Klippa, into darkness. That's why, there is, that's why the Rambam says, that, that, that don't think that because the Torah doesn't say this punishment, don't think to take this lightly. This is the biggest, the biggest Avera the Rambam says, because you, the child that is born is not going to be Jewish. But the deeper meaning, based on what we're understanding is, you're taking Kedusha and you're separating it. Now to, make it, to take it even a step deeper, when you create a child, when you create a child, it's not just the power of your essence. It says that the power to have children, really, Human beings don't have the power to procreate. Animals don't have the power, nothing. You see, the power to have children is really an infinite power. Why is the power to have children an infinite power? Because you're creating a child who that child has the potential to get married and have children. And that child has the potential. So really, you're creating an infinite chain when you're having a child. That's why it says, that, you know, what's the reason why when we get married we go under a chuppah? What's the reason why we go under a canopy? So the explanation is given is because two human beings themselves, you know, we know from the Gemara, the Gemara says there are three partners in a human being. His father and his mother and God gives the neshama. The reason why we go under a chuppah is because you have two finite beings, they step under the chuppah and the chuppah represents something that's bigger than them, represents the Ein Sof, it represents the infinite. They're drawing the Shekhinah, they're drawing God into their marriage. Every time you're having physical relations, someone is having with his wife, they're actually drawing on that infinite power. That's why it's so holy. Because in Judaism, we see it as a very, very holy entity. Because you're drawing, it's the deepest moment with God, because you're connecting to in-self energy and drawing it down. So if, God forbid, if someone is having, a Jew is having relations with a non-Jewish woman, not only is he corrupting from his essence of his own neshama, pulling the deepest core of his being and planting it and amputating into Kedusha, he's taking a piece of the Ein Sof, 
a piece of God, giving it into klipa, and it's becoming part of the klipa. Klipa means the shell forces. He gives them some infinite power. That's why this sin makes it worse than any other sin in the world. In that sense. Because in every other sin, you're investing something, it remains kedusha. It's just like you're throwing it into the klipa. And event, it's hard to get it out. It's very, there's whole rules of how you can extract, when you can extract. It has to be very powerful tshuva to be able to re- extract and turn a negative sin, a zedo, a, a, an intentional sin, into a positive sin. But still, even before you extracted it and transformed it and did tshuva, it remains kedusha. The unholy, it remains holiness. The unholy didn't get it. It's, it's, it's deriving sustenance from it, but it, the energy itself, still belongs to Kedusha. It belongs in holiness. This is the only time where there is a sin that's an amputation and a total cutaway from God. Now we'll also understand. So then the, uh, that, that's why. Remember, I asked the question at the beginning why does God take this so personal? Why is it tachas ashekine lelokav? He 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 had vengeance for God. Lelokav for God. Kano yes kenasi my vengeance, because there's nothing as detrimental and as hurtful to God than God forbid taking pieces of His ain sof of His infinite and putting it into the bad, into the darkness. But now the question is, hold it. How is it that a person could do that? I mean, if these are boundaries, like we said earlier, that God set in creation. God set in creation that there is a separation between Jew and non-Jew. Hashem had, had, had made, Hashem made a difference, we say it in, by Havdalah. Hamavdil, he separates, ben Kodesh l'chol, ben holy and holy, ben or l'chol shech, light and darkness, ben Yisrael, and ben Yisrael l'amen, between Jew and non-Jew. Here a person is, he's actually, crossing over the border, breaking the boundary that God Himself made. And listen here, the boundary that has been made is such a powerful boundary, it's even more than the difference of light and darkness. Why even more than light and darkness? You see, night and day, light and darkness, are two opposites that you can't bridge. Light and darkness, light and darkness, day and night. But yet, both of them are creations. And yet, being that God set each one for their own, Hashem called the day light and darkness called night a human being can't mess with that fundamental separation that God made even though they're both creations but to take a Jew to rip a Jewish neshama and to turn him into a non-Jew that's really what's happening a Jew is being transformed into non-Jew that's taking infinite that's taking God because a Jew is a piece of God, and making him into a, a creation, not stam a creation, a creation of, of, the, of, the, of the unholy. How is that possible? How can we do that? If you can't, you can't if no one can change night to darkness, how, how can we, chas v'shalom, bring about such a change? So here too you understand the greatness of the Jew. And the ability to do this tells us because we're so great. Why? Because when Hashem created us, Hashem created us in His image. And Hashem says in Parshas Bereshis, that the human being is like one of us. So Chazal say, what does that mean, like one of us? The human being is like the singular one in the world. That means that, and it says, and what does that mean, that human being is, that he knows good and bad. Meaning to say that the human being has free choice. 
So I'm not going to get into one too, but philosophers and Hasidus explains in a gewaldige thing, an amazing thing. The reason we have the Bechir Achavshah's free will, everything in creation is set by certain rules and certain regulations. Everything works in a certain predictable manner. Everything has its rules. We say that someone has free will. How do you have free will? Can't we say that based on your biological science and all, and take, if we were to take all the math of every event that happened in your life and everything and all the effects of everything of what you ate yesterday and put it all into a supercomputer and try to predict what the human being is going to choose, are we going to be able to predict the answers we're going to be able to predict because there are certain rules. But yet, a human being can override all of that and choose the opposite. Why? Because Hashem gave us Bechira. Now I'm not going to get into it right now, but that real, real Bechira Chavshiz is really only by the Jewish people. Only the Jew has the ultimate experience of Bechira Chavshiz. Why? Because this power to choose whatever you want, and you're not bound by any rules and regulations, is only coming from the very quintessence of God Himself. God Himself is beyond any rule and regulation. Because all rules and regulations and all definitions He created... He stands above them all. God gave us a part of His essence. And therefore, because we have Bechir HaChavshis, we can even undo a barrier. We can choose to undo a barrier and a set thing that God created etched in stone, that a Jew is a Jew and a non-Jew is a non-Jew, and the two of them are infinitely apart, Yet the only one who can break that rule is not a non-Jew. A non-Jew can't make that. No one can do that. An angel can't do that. Even the supernal attributes in heaven cannot do that. The only one can do that is a Jew because a Jew is, is rooted in God's essence and therefore he's not bound by even that choice that Jew and non-Jew should be separated. He transcends even that rule because he's rooted in the essence of God higher than everything. And therefore he can choose to go against Hashem's wishes and make a terrible destruction in creation and make a Jew be a non-Jew. Wow. So to be able to do this sin, you have to activate your Jewishness. You see what's happening over here? The Jew, you say, the Jew has to reveal the depth of his Jewishness to be able to do such a sin. But here, take a look, he's using it for the most perverted thing. He's using it to make the biggest destruction to make from a Jew an non-Jew. But he has to dig so deep the ability to do so. Wow. Now we'll understand why as a result of the sin and as a result of Pinchas' heroic act, what was his reward? He became a coin. He crossed a, a non... Um, he crossed a border that no one can cross. Pinchas went over, he crossed a boundary that cannot, you can't go over. And yet Pinchas becomes a Kohen. Even though the Kohen and the non-Kohen are infinitely apart by God. And you can't change it. The answer is, since what Zimri was doing was an act that went against the very fabric of existence. He was breaking boundaries. And Pinchas was the antithesis fighting that so Pinchas was also drawing on that Bechira Chashis, and therefore he was bringing about the opposite, a charge into Kedusha. He was bringing from Kedusha into the unholy, Pinchas was moving from, Kid, from the unholy into Kedusha, with that same power that Zimri was doing it on the other side. 
Now we understand why this is a midah keneged midah. And dafka, only for this act was there ever such a reward where the person became a different human being because the consequence of the sin is to become something negative. Now we'll also understand, this is very deep, this is very deep and very important. Now we'll also understand why you can only kill that individual at the time that they're doing the act. Because let's see what's happening. See, in every other sin, there is the after effects of the sin because the, every sin you're investing powers of your Kedusha into the Klippa. And that power remains in Golos. It remains in captivity. It's there. The sin itself is crying out, get me out of here. The Kedusha that's there is saying, take me out, I'm trapped. So when you're, any Avera you do, you're putting powers of Kedusha into the unholy and it remains there. So there is a, the effects of the sin remain longer than the sin itself. But over here, since you're causing an amputation, that transfer happens the moment he is transferring from himself into her. At that moment, he is taking Kedusha into Klippa. Now once he gave it, once, he said, once the act is over, he's already made the amputation. It's not Jewish anymore. The child isn't Jewish. It's an entity that became dark. It's done already. The act of vengeance is against, the act of killing this individual is stopping or at the moment when this thing is happening and it's only happening at that second. It's not happening later. Now, there are other consequences. Besides the, 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 the power to create a child, there are the fact that he's, uh, he's investing other powers of himself into her, he's, he, he's, his, his eyesight, his hearing, other things. Well, these things, that is lingering. These are powers that Zimri put of his neshama into her, and that remains Kedusha. It's only the power to create the child, that element, that's, only, that's so severe, because over here you're causing the amputation, it's only at the time when it's happening, and no other time. It's not later. And that's why this is the only time where we find that someone is punishable by death, but only at that time. Now we'll also understand why it's not given over to the court. Why it's not given over to the basin. And why it's only given over to a zealot. And why you don't, the rabbi cannot give you the verdict that this is what you do. And the answer is a simple, very deep, but hear, hear, hear the answer. I'm going a little bit longer, but please bear with me. The answer is as follows. Torah gives us, the Torah tells us that we have free choice in this world. What's our free choice? There's good and there's bad, and our work is choose life, choose what's good, and do not choose what's bad. So Torah tells us we have choices. So Bechira Chavshis, as it is from the realm of Torah, the way Torah understands it, what's Bechira Chavshis? Not to make from a holy unholy, but rather there are two paths. There is Kedusha, there is holy, good, and there is bad. You choose which one you want. Torah does not have within it, because you know what? Torah does not have even the concept in it that you can actually take the unholy and make it holy, or the or holy make it unholy. Torah doesn't have due restriction on that. Because Torah, def- what's Torah? Torah is God's wisdom that defines reality. So it's defining reality. What's reality? The Abish created this to be the night to be night, day to be day, holy to be holy, this to be that, Jew to be Jew, non-Jew to be non-Jew, kosher to be kosher, this is non-kosher. That's what Torah does. Now, we know, that's why we know, that when a Jew is going to do a fabulous thing, he's going to take 
something that he created non-kosher in the world and he's going to turn it back into kosher. We know that in order to do to make sins into merits, we know the Torah doesn't have that power. Because Torah can only tell you what is and define to you what it is. It says when, when they ask Torah, what should a sinner do? Torah didn't have an answer. Torah said, bring a carbon, do this. Torah could not tell you to do tshuva. They asked God and they said, what should a sinner do? And God said, let him do tshuva. What do you see from here? In order to do tshuva, what, is, what does tshuva do? Tshuva takes something that is sinful, something that is, that is dark, and is able to turn the sin itself into kedusha, back into holiness. Breaking the borders, changing things. Torah doesn't have that power to do that. That's why Torah couldn't suggest tshuva. Tshuva comes only from the Jew, because the Jew is higher than Torah, and the Jew is locked into the essence of God, and from there the Jew can do the impossible, make an Avera into good. But let's understand something. Over there, when you're, doing, when you're taking a, an Avera and you're turning it into a mitzvah, you're not really changing something. You're taking sparks of holiness that were always holy. It's just it was trapped and locked into a clipper and no one can break that lock. The impossibility is that you're breaking it open and you're taking the Kedusha potential and releasing it. That's impossible and that's what Shuva gives you to do. But you're not really, really, really turning things around from one identity to the other. Because when Zedayna is Nasus Kazachis, when sins becomes merit, it doesn't mean that the sin becomes a merit. It means the energy that's in the sin becomes a mitzvah. That means the, the energy, but that energy was always Kedusha. So you see, even in Tshuva, that's what we're saying right now, even in Tshuva that's higher than Torah, it's not like we're taking mamish black and making it white. When are you doing, when are you taking black and making, or white and making it black in the sin that we're speaking about now when you're activating Bechir HaChavshiz? That's why the, the remedy to this the fighting back against this power that the Jew has that's higher than Torah, and the fact that the Jew can do the most impossible thing to make from Hashem, from make from Ein Sof, give it into Klippa, the response can't come from Torah. The response has to come from a Jewish neshama when he sees something so horrific happening, and it shakes him to the core and says, no way. And that's what happened with Pinchas. Only when the Neshama is shaken, much higher than Torah, and the power of Mesiras Nefesh comes out. Because if you, also if you ask the rabbi, the rabbi might tell you, you're not allowed to even do it. You're risking your life. You're putting your life in danger. And yet the zealot doesn't care about anything. He doesn't even care if the Torah, in a sense, gives him permission or not. Because right now he's burning with his fervor for God. That's coming from the essence of the Jew. And only that can counter... The Avera that's taking from the essence into Klippa, only the essence can counter and put it back and change it back into Kedusha. So the Torah can't even give you a Psaq Allah. Torah can't even say this to you. It was revealed through the Torah. Because everything needs to be revealed through the Torah, but in essence it's a power higher than the Torah. This is the idea. We don't really have that. We've really used up all the time. I just wanted to say all the other stuff, all the other ideas that are discussed in Parshas Pinchas are elements that reveal the power of the Jewish essence. Number one, let's do it very quickly. The next story is the counting of the Jewish people. The counting of the Jewish people, the fact that every single Jew is counted equally. And that we t- 
totally dismiss this person being a rabbi and he knows Shas and Paiskim, he knows the entire Talmud, Kabbalah and Ennis. And this guy is a person who knows nothing, is an ignorant and didn't even do one mitzvah his whole life. So you would think this guy should be counted for 600 people and this person should be counted maybe for a, a, a percent of a percent of a person. And what are you doing? doesn't make a difference. Every single person is counted as one and the same. Moshe Rabbeinu is one, and Chatzkel the tailor is one, exactly the same like Moshe. How does that happen? And the answer is because we're defining a human being not by his external expression, not by any power, but by the fact, his essence, the fact that he's a Jew. That's counting. Counting touches on the essence. And that's why it follows the story of Pinchas, which is the power of the Jewish essence. The next thing is the division of the land. Eretz Yisrael is our land and it's not for the Gentiles. It's not for the Gentiles. It's the Jewish land because it is. And nothing in the world, no UN and no Shmuel and no Clinton and whoever else is there that wants to, who would think, no one else in the world can dare tell the Jewish people about this land. Because this land is our land. Because it's ours, it's given to us. It's the essence of the land. It's to the essence of the Jewish people. And that's why the division of the land was given through what? Through lottery. What is a lottery? They didn't make any calculations. Who, what, where, and when. The whole thing was a lottery. It's all lottery shows on essence. So the lots have fallen. It reaches, the, the Jewish people owning Eretz Yisrael reaches into the quintessence of what God created and what Hashem made. And then finally, the story of the Musafs, the extra karbonis, it's not so much all the karbonis, the last and final Musaf is the Musaf of Shmini Atzeres, which we know that the whole sukkah we give animals for all the nations. Shmini Atzeres, the last karbon Musaf, God says, you're not busy with the world anymore, there is no world, it's only me and you, let's party alone. Again, revealing the essence of the Jew, infinitely transcending the world and the creation. The ruling, of the, 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 the harah, the direction that we could take out of all of this, by the way, not the chas v'sholem, just to speak about a devastating sin, and that's so bad, but to realize that as no matter how mess we make, no matter how terrible it is, just like we have the power to infinitely destroy, even on the highest, even in the, reaching in the most sensitive of places, you can fix it all. Every Jew, no matter what he has done in all his life, can fix it also. Because if the Jew has a power of Bechira to redefine all of existence and to change everything, one deep cry of every single one of us can change reality. We can change. If Chas V'Shalom, a person sinned, even the sins that we were talking about earlier, that too can be fixed in an instant. Because the depth of a Jewish cry can change everything. Because a Jew has master over creation. And more than everything else, we have the power to change the darkness to light and make the gullus stop being a gullus and to turn the gullus into the geula, may we merit to see the complete and total redemption right now.
Caillou with Caillou.